pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would guide us through as we talk about the history of the church, that we would be um, instructed by it, uh, not like scripture, obviously, but just that we would learn from the saints of old and see how they've done things so that we can learn from them and also not make the mistakes that were made. And so help us to learn both ways from them. That's in your name we pray. Amen. So Dave had some questions concerning the uh, the text today, and so I want to bring those up. Uh, first, you know, I mentioned uh, three, First Timothy three one or three two that says the husband must uh, he must be a, the husband of one wife. I mentioned the male part, but didn't mention the one wife part, and so Dave had, uh, just wanted me to address that. Didn't really have a question, I don't think. Uh, and so yes, the husband of one wife, meaning that. Well, the obvious meaning, there's no adultery or polygamy. But then there's also the matter of divorce. And so um, in a case where an elder has been divorced, that uh, usually will have to be taken up with the the other elders to decide, is the divorce, um, was it scriptural? Was it based on the spouse abandoning or committing adultery, or was it some kind of other divorce? Um, and then, you know, was were, were they unbelievers when that happened? Did they have they since converted? And then, um, are attempt or, you know wanting to live right by their marriage and, and that sort of thing? So there's a number of case. There's a number of things that would have to be taken up in that. Um, so I think we can take it hard line, husband of one wife, obviously, but then we should, you know, the elders in the church are left to some discretion there to make sure that, uh, what does that mean, you know, if, if he's divorced and that sort of thing. Is that... In the culture of the time where Paul's writing this, uh-huh. what would they have thought? Would, were there uh, polygamous marriages back then, or... Yes. There was polygamy going on, uh, less in the Jewish culture, but definitely in the uh, the Greek and Roman culture. And so I think that has a little more sting to it as far as Paul's concern, or as far as Paul's teaching to uh, the churches in the area. And so when Paul says the husband of one wife, the reader was, is, was reading, oh, so I can't have multiple wives. But I also think it is a, it is concerning divorce and and that as well. Uh, I think the Hebrew reader would also need to to pay that in, in mind because the the scriptures are pretty plain about divorce and um, what that looks like. You know, remarrying is a very um, difficult thing, and so you don't you want to be careful um, with that and considering that issue. And also. Can an elder be single and still serve in that in that role? Um, and I would say, as a rule, probably not, because of you know what Paul says that he must manage his household well. If he's not able to manage the household of God, how can he care for the church? Well, how do we know um, what he's capable of? And so. I would say that if a man was single and wanted to pastor a church or wanted to be a ruling elder, that it would be a, uh, it'd be a, a more of a exception, rare exception, rather than the rule. Um, any questions about that? I would say 
some of those things about um, the fact that like, a single man couldn't do that. Mm-hmm. Or like, it's not an achievement. Right. Like some of the godliest people that I've ever known were a widow, a widow lady who was in her 70s and 80s that probably spread the gospel more in my community that I grew up in than anyone. And um, so it's not a, a, a whether you're effective in ministry or anything like that. Um, so I want to encourage everybody to, to know that. If you aspire to be an elder, that's that's a great aspiration to say, I would like to to leave my household well enough that one day, you know, somebody can say at least you you make a good elder. That's a good thing to aspire to, not for the vanity of it, but everybody should be doing ministry. Right. That's and the good. little joke in Presbyterian circles is that you just find a guy who's already been an elder and then invite him to take the title because he's already living that way. He's already discipling people. Absolutely. No, I think an elder shows their gifts. Their gifts. You know, we, you, I think the congregation sees that in a person. Yes, that person is leading our congregation. So then they should be. You know, we're going to talk about the office of deacon next week. It's the same thing. That person is acting as a deacon among our congregation, so he should have this office. And I think that's a, I think that's a good note too. That we, it's a recognition of gifts rather than a bestowing of gifts. Um, yeah, and, and there's times also I'll just say this from being at New Geneva where where I was an elder and. Um, We've had a couple times where there was a guy or two that we were thinking about, like, hey, would you be a good person to kind of get into this? And some of them are so effective in what they're doing and have a ministry that's going down this path in the community that the answer sometimes is, let's not burden them with anything else. So sometimes it's about a person's uh, not just ability and gifts that God's given them, but whether that even right for the church at this time. Right. So it's, there's a lot that goes into it. I, I wanted to bring out something that would be hard for you to preach on, but it's easier for me to bring up. And that is uh, when when the leadership, the elders, are trying to to lead, and so they're they're teaching and admonishing and encouraging. They're on the side, they're meeting with you, they're having Bible studies, all that stuff. How do we be good followers? You know, and so there's a question there for all, and I'm one too. I'm, I may be an elder, but I'm also subject to the, the father brothers too. So I, I think right. it's a question I want everybody else to ask: Is are you a good follower? I mean, I'm telling you, I had to sit my mom and dad down and repent and confess to them that I was not a very good son. They're all you a great son. I was deceptive. I, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And so I think about that as in the church where we. We have to ask ourselves, are we being good followers, too? And when you are in a church where there's good leaders and good followers, it's like the Spirit of the Lord's there. sort of sense that, and I sense that here, as we, but we're so small. Mm-hmm. I think it's something for us to consider, and just for everybody here to go, hey, yeah. Because yeah. it's not just are you following the leadership of the elders, are you following the Lord? He is the shepherd. Right. Ultimately, it's... Yeah, are you following the Lord? And I think that's for all of us. I think it, you know we're an elder in the church. Really, is just an under shepherd. It's a shepherd under the care of another shepherd. Ultimately, 
several others in most cases. You know, there's no big shot. We're all we're all accountable to one another in that regard. So, um, and another question uh, was about the distinction between teaching elders and ruling elders. Is that a biblical distinction? And so, if you're still open in First Timothy, look at First uh, Timothy five seventeen. Some Presbyterian churches don't make the distinction, but we we do, and it's largely based on this verse. Um, there are others. I think this is the most uh, telling verse. It says First uh, Timothy five seventeen says, "Let the elders who rule be considered worthy of double honor." especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. And so here there seems to be a distinction between the elders that only rule versus the elders that do that and preach and teach. Um, now, couple that with the, the qualifications that we read in chapter 3, that in all elders should be able to teach. But I think some are particularly gifted at that, and usually those... The church recognizes as ministers, not always. Uh, there are gifted teachers who aren't ministers. I mean, some of the best professors I had are, are not ministers. They were uh, Mr., or we called them professor. You know, that they weren't an uh, ordained minister or not even a Ph.D. They were just um, very, very gifted in that field, and so they were well respected. And so I think... The church makes that distinction between the teaching and the ruling elder there. Um, and we're actually, as we talk about church history today, we're going to see some, some of how that's played out over history um, and how different groups have interpreted that differently. Um, not necessarily the distinction between teaching and ruling, but the two different kinds of elders, or are there two kinds of elders, and that's what we'll look at. So any, is, that, is that good? Is that helpful? Yeah, this is an elder reform church. I didn't run into uh, a differentiation in elders until I was in the Presbyterian Church. Right. We never talked about two types. Right. Um, and the PCA has the distinction, and then I guess ARP does. So you were an elder in the PCA, right? And CRC. Okay. And they didn't have that in the CRC? No. Hmm. Interesting. So, yeah, it's not – and I would say that it's not a uh, – you know, not something you have to hang your hat on. You know, I, th- I think it's good administratively and it's good uh, for the church, but it's not a necessary distinction. I think uh, a lot of our Reformed Baptist brethren, they have elders in the church, and the elders, there's no distinction between pastor and other elder. There's just all elders, and one elder may take the load, the teaching load, um, but they are equal in office. And so... Uh, you, you can see lots of iterations of this, but I think in general, Reformed churches recognize the office of elder, um, and it may have different bearing, but in general, it recognizes that office being here laid out in First Timothy 3. And it's important as we go into talking about church history, because that's one of the things we're going to talk about, uh, is how the early church was organized. Um, and I think it's, it's a good question for us. When someone talks about the early church or how the early church did things, how, do, how should we or how do we receive that information? I think there are two, two main ways it's received, and I think there's a, a better version of that. So 
So when you hear, if you hear, um, well, Ignatius of Antioch, he um, he was a big proponent of bishops. What does that? And Ignatius was a disciple of John. How does that make us feel? What, what what's the first thing we want to do with that information in our brains? Well, I'll tell you what I want to do. What's that? Yeah, take it to Scripture. Is he right? I mean, I don't care what Ignatius says. Is he right? That's one extreme. Um, The other extreme is, if he did it, it must be right. That's the tradition of the church. He was was an apostle, or he was a a disciple of an apostle. He obviously was doing everything right, and so he must have been thinking the correct way, so we have to do the things the way that he said them. So we see history as prescriptive at that point. And so I think there's a middle ground. I think we need to see history as instructive for us, but it is not, it does not uh, hold authority over us. So we're going to see that as we go through the history of the church. The church is not always doing the right thing. Uh, We'd love for them to be, but they're not always doing the right thing. And so we have to be careful. how we view history, and I'll remind us of this regularly. Um, I think even when we get to the Reformers, uh, it may be easy to look at someone like Calvin and be like, yes, he was perfect. Uh, no, he wasn't. He wasn't. Um, his theology was was great, but he had some problems. All right, Luther had great theology of justification, but he was messed up. All right, So we're, we're not looking at perfect men. We're not looking at perfect people, perfect doctrines or anything. We're looking at history. And it is what it is. So that's an important idea. So a few things. All right. So I just want to kind of look at the old church, how they did things. And, and before we move on to the teachings, and we'll, we'll talk a little bit about their theology today. But mostly, I just want to look at how they did things. The church then was largely organized in two main, there were two main ideas as far as organization of the church. Uh, one group saw that there was two offices, kind of like what we talked about today, the office of elder the office of deacon, which we'll talk about the qualifications for next week. Um, this is seen largely in the apostolic time, obviously, with the apostles and um, afterwards. And then it wasn't till later, well, not much later, obviously, because Ignatius uh, came around and others, that the, we see this three-office system begin to uh, kind of come out. And the three offices would have been elders, deacons, and Bishops. I mentioned in the in the sermon that there's two words that are used for the office of or for elder, and that is presbyteros, which is where we get uh, Presbyterian, and then episkopos, which is where we get the word like bishop or um, episcopalian. And so the idea behind the bishop early on in the church was they served a single church. So it's not like we think of bishops today with a diocese and that sort of thing. Uh, but it was a bishop that served a single church and would have been looked at as more like a president among all the elders. President's not really a good term, but governor, some sort of leader, the elder of the elders. Yeah, the, the, the one that the other ones answer to, literally, not like uh, the most wise or the... You know, the one that we all look to because he's a great person, but there was literally a, a hierarchy structure 
in the church where the bishop was the highest elder in that church and then the other elders served under him. And so um, you see that early on. You see that early as the early second century in the church. And a lot of these towns only had one big church. So it wasn't like, again, it's not like a diocese or something like that, but you have these different bishops that, that begin to spring up. Um, what are some other views today on church government? There's one other one that we won't really even talk about until post-Reformation, but uh, it's probably one that we're all most familiar with. Yep. Congregationalism, which is uh, seen, I think, most prominently in the SBC, Southern Baptist Church, where you have, uh, the, like you said, the autonomy of the local church. They make their own decisions. They're about their own business. They ordain their own pastors, all of that sort of thing. And you don't see that actually come about until 16th century separatist movement and then definitely during the 17th century English Civil War where you kind of have these battle going back and forth um, with that. And so um, that's where you start to see that. You don't see that in early church history. Again, not trying to discount that as... You don't see it in early history, therefore it's wrong. Again, we bow to Scripture, and so I'm not, um, I mean, I don't think Scripture teaches that model, but I'm willing to learn, but I won't I won't be learning from history on that just because um, the English 17th century was doing it where it doesn't mean that we should do that. Um, so early church, what did they do in their worship services? Well, things that you would think they did in their worship services. They prayed sang songs, they had readings just like we do, they have a sermon um, some interesting things about their readings, what do you think they read? The Old Testament, the Old Testament. right we're talking about uh, this is before the New Testament was, was organized and canonized and it wasn't that they didn't read those letters because you know the letters of Paul and Peter and the others were, were passed throughout the churches and they would read them but they weren't Canonized the scripture until later, and we'll talk about that. Um, but they also read other things. So they read non-scriptural things. They read uh, some of the other letters from the other apostolic fathers. Uh, we'll talk some about those. Uh, Ignatius was one of those. Clement of Rome. Um, they read something called the Shepherd of Hermas, which is an interesting little little text. It's kind of a. Some of you probably read Pilgrim's Progress. John Bunyan. It's kind of like. Second century, John Bunyan uh, had some, it was a big allegory, but it had some apocalyptic literature as well. Um, and they would read that in their services to one another. Um, not because it's biblical or because it's uh, authoritative, but it was a good something for them to read. Um, they would sing psalms. Did they only sing psalms? They wrote hymns. They sang hymns, just like we have hymn writers today. Now again, that's not telling us that we shouldn't that we should sing hymns or that we shouldn't sing psalms or whatever. Um, but it, they did sing hymns and other and other things. They would pray, and their prayers were interesting because they not only would they have prayer like we that like we do, um, they would have extemporaneous prayer where just members in order would stand up in the church and pray. Then they would have written prayers. We still have some of those prayers uh, where they would actually write their prayers out. Um, and I think that's, a, that's actually a good practice. It's something to think about. So we're very on purpose about the words that we're saying. Uh, 
It was also un- not uncommon for, for members to stand and speak. You know, uh, the Jewish synagogue, you saw this even in the New Testament in the, in the Gospels where Jesus stood and he read a text from Isaiah. Um, and of course, Jesus said, this is fulfilled in your hearing. Not, none of the men were able to say that. But it wasn't uncommon for people to stand and to rise and speak. And so that they would do that during the church. Um, that there was obviously preaching, and then there was the Eucharist, which we call the Lord's Supper. Uh, their Eucharist was not only the Lord's Supper, but that, that was also when they would come forward and give offerings. And so I, I'm fond of that model. I think we keep our offering up front because of that. We don't have a particular time set aside for that, not because I don't think it's right or anything. We just don't. But they combined that time in their church. They had something called the Agape Feast, which is the love feast. And the agape feast uh, actually got a lot of churches into trouble. Um, we see that in the, the letters to the Corinthians. They uh, took liberties with the elements and became kind of drink fests. And uh, a lot of early churches actually just banned them outright. So the agape feast isn't something that kind of has stuck around. Um, but they had them early on. And even in their worship, they had something called uh, the kiss of peace, where they would have a time where people would like embrace and, and kiss one another. Um, why did they do that? Yeah. Well, why did they do that? Where do we read that? The Apostle Paul. Greet each other with a holy kiss. Uh, well, it actually got them into trouble. We'll talk about that next week when we start talking about persecutions. But it actually got them into trouble um, because they... I mean, churches, the churches met behind closed doors, and they're in there kissing each other. Oh, well, okay. So the Roman people were not too fond of that, so they, of course they embellished and made up crazy stories about what was going on. Any questions about their worship? I mean, it was similar to what we do today. Uh, I think that's important. They weren't, they didn't have hold of some magic that we don't. Um, they did the things that we do. So. It's hard for us to know exactly what they did. Like, we don't have a, a video we can watch and say, oh, here's right. we, we learn a lot from history. And one thing that has helped me to understand it is to recognize that I'm not looking for perfection in anybody's, including our own. I, I want to do it as worship like God ordains in their parts and we do the best we can. Right. And can be can be refined. But you actually kind of see this today as you see the gospel go into places where it hasn't reached much before. And as it takes a foothold in a culture, right, that they come to the gospel with their cultural background. Right. And uh, it, it took a long time, and it takes us a long time as families, two or three generations, before we kind of break away some from things that have, have held us back. Right. And so just remember that as you see other cultures you read in the internet and magazines today, and also when you look at the first century, you know, because other people who are really judgmental say, oh, I can't believe they were doing that. They probably weren't even Christians. Right. Like, you know, and I've addressed that before by saying, oh, no, they, they were risking their lives to be Christians. Right. But it's easy for you and your you know, whatever, you don't play certain instruments or you do whatever it is you do to then judge people in history. This is not fair. Right. No, I think it's good. And I, 
I think particularly when we look at their theology. I mean, you read the, the first century writers, and they were very simple in their theology. Their theology was very simple, and I don't mean that in a negative way, but it was it was very plain. It wasn't developed like we see today. You know, we have people like Jonathan Edwards who I, I can't read Jonathan Edwards more than a page at a time. It's so dense and so hard. You didn't see that in the early church. Why? Because Edwards was in the 16th century, not in or yeah, 16th century. 17th century. He was not 20 years after Jesus died. You know, he he he's had time. The, the church has had time to develop, and so I liken it to a uh, you know like a, a child that's learning to walk. Um, and I think a lot of times we we think of well they should have had the perfect theology because they were led by John and Peter and Paul. No. Um, that's not necessarily the truth because we are all prone to wander. We are all prone to sin. And so their theology needed developing, just like ours still does. Don't think for a minute that we've got it nailed down in the 21st century church. We don't. Um, and so I think it's important. You know, things like the doctrine of the Trinity, they were not nearly as articulate as the apostles were. Um, and their understanding of the Trinity. I think they, you often see in their literature, they talked about, yes, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we believe those three are God, but they didn't understand the relationship between them. Um, and so it was hard for them to talk about that. It's hard for us to talk about it today, but they, they were just learning these things. The, who is Christ? Well, he was God, yes. He was man, Maybe, and they struggled with that, but, uh, you know, they had a limited understanding of that. John's gospel actually came later, you know, relatively in the church, and it was essential in helping them understand that, yes, Christ was man. Christ was man, and he was God, and he still is, and John's gospel is helpful. Um, Their doctrine of justification, they struggled with justification. They largely thought it was a meritorious idea. That they could do good things and they could earn their way to heaven. Again, they were in infancy. They were struggling with this. You see these flashes of brilliance from the early church, but by and large, they were really struggling with who they were, what they should teach. And, you know, Andy pointed out a lot of times it was just because they were perse- being persecuted. They didn't have time to sit and talk together. You know, it wasn't necessarily an easy thing to do. And persecutions were kind of intermittent during the early church, but they were still happening. And I think the church struggled to kind of come together, and it wasn't until later that they, were, they actually had time to sit and deal with their theology that they started to put things down on paper, and we see that with some of the early church councils. Um, so any questions there about their theology? I think I may encourage you to go read some of these guys. We'll talk about, I'm going to talk about three of them. Um, good stuff, you know, uh, one of the people, Clement of Rome, he's actually mentioned in Philippians 4 uh, as Paul's disciple. Philippians 4.3 mentions Clement. And um, he wrote a letter to the church of Corinth. Why did he do that? Well, just take a guess. Do you think Paul's letters really worked to help them turn the boat around? They didn't. So Clement was writing to the church. Repent. He was writing to the elders of the church to repent. Uh, so his letter has a lot of that feel to it. 
interesting, um, in Clement's letter, there were just two offices, elder and deacon. Um, and so this was read by the early church. This letter was. It's a good read. Not, well, it's not scripture, but it's a good thing for people to read. I think it's good for us. Not Again, we don't, we're not going to find any nuggets of truth there that have never been untold in the church, and we should somehow all of a sudden add Clement to the scriptures. I'm not saying that, but because if you read it, you're going to be like, oh, that's kind of odd. Um, but then most of the time, you're going to be like, okay, that, this guy knew what he was talking about. So it's fascinating. Uh, Ignatius is another one who was likely an apostle, an apostle of John, or not an apostle, a disciple of John. Um, and Ignatius is an interesting story because he was sentenced to death, and he was sentenced to, to die in Rome. And so all along the way to Rome, you know, it wasn't like you get on a plane and go to Rome. It was like a, a long journey. And so he wrote these letters to churches, and he wrote seven. And um, <clears throat> he was encouraging them. He was talking about he was excited to be martyred for the faith. Um, so much so that some even encouraged him, hey, don't, don't do that. You know, it's to, if you were alive, that's okay too. But he was really excited to go and be a martyr. And that's what he did. He was actually uh, taken to Rome and he was eaten by lions. Not um, a good thing. But Ignatius spoke of the deity of Christ. You know, this was early on. He was an apostle, or a disciple of John, probably. He spoke of the deity of Christ. John surely taught him that. John has taught us that. Uh, and interestingly enough, Ignatius is one of the first places that we read about the office of bishop being a thing in the early church. And so who do you think actually leans very heavily upon Ignatius for their uh, strength in their position? Catholic Church. Again, tradition here, scripture down here. That's indicative of the way that they view all things. They love Ignatius. He's like a soldier for them because he, yeah, he he's a saint for them. That's right. Saint Ignatius Maniac. Yeah. So he so he was and Calvin actually um, said some pretty nasty things about Ignatius for that same reason, which we don't have to agree with Calvin. Ignatius is a we'll meet him in heaven. Calvin and Ignatius are eating at the Lord's table together today. So. Uh, even though Galvin said some mean things, said his letters were a pile of garbage. And so uh, um, maybe I've probably said things like that too. So, I've, you know, but it's interesting just to see some of the different interactions there because I've read some of Ignatius' stuff. Again, it's good stuff. I don't agree with everything because he's not Paul or he's not Peter. We don't have to agree with Ignatius. And then lastly, uh, we'll talk, I want to talk about Polycarp. He's probably one of my favorite early church fathers. Um, he was a disciple of John, for sure. This is a known thing. Several early church writers write about this. Um, his writings, along with Ignatius, actually showed us that scripture, or the Christians celebrated the Sabbath on the first day of the week. That they, and they called it the Lord's Day. You see this even in the book of Revelation where John says that he was uh, praying on the Lord's Day. And he saw these visions on the Lord's Day. And so this is an early, uh, an early idea that the church began to celebrate um, the Sabbath on the first day of the week rather than on Saturday. And worship during that time. 
um, he lived a long life. He was martyred at 86, and he has a very quotable quote. If you, you guys have probably heard this, he says, "He said, 80 and six years I have served him, and he never did me any injury. How then can I blaspheme my King and my Savior?" Uh, they tied him to the stake and they they burned him, and uh, they asked him one last time to re- to recant what he was saying, and he didn't. He uh, 86 years old and he died at the stake because of his faith in the Lord Jesus. Um, it's fascinating um, that these men and women. We'll talk more about that with persecution when we talk about that next week. Just the things they endured for the faith that we take for granted, you know. Um, and Paul, you can read that in some of his writings. Um, he's got some interesting stuff as well. But just the faith that they had, you know, Jesus has never did me anything wrong. Why would I blaspheme against him? Um, it's fascinating to me. Um, and there are others we could talk about. I think there are some very interesting characters. Um, Papias is another one you've probably heard of. A lot of uh, dispensationalists use Papias to back up their belief that because Papias was premillennial, so they say, well, look, premillennialism is a uh, thing that's been around since the early church. Yes, since Papias, but not since uh, Paul or Peter. So, um, but anyway. So, any questions, thoughts? Yeah, if you think about it, the early church, they had uh, the letters of the apostles, and they had letters from the apostles students, mm-hmm. and they probably have other people that were trying to put things together, but until the canon and the scripture came together, nothing was systematized, and nobody, I'm sure there's got the point of all these different letters that, you know, some started um, disagreeing with others, and so there was a lot of confusion in the early church because of not having a canon defined. Absolutely. And and along with many of the heresies that were floating around then, you know, we'll, we'll talk about the Gnosticism and um, some, you know, the heresies concerning the nature of Christ. You know, was he just man? Was he was he just God? Did he just appear to be man? You know, it's uh, a heresy called Docetism. But he just appeared to be man. He actually never was just kind of appeared. Um, so they were struggling through their faith. I, th- I think we're, we're too quick to discount some of those guys who really who really had to wrestle in a different way than we do because so many people have done the homework for us. Yeah, go ahead. Well, today's point, too, we, we see it in 1 Timothy. We're going to, so I don't want to steal your sermon's material, but where he instructs Timothy, he says, teach this Teach the scripture, read the scripture, exhort and teach the scripture. Yeah. And uh, by the way, godliness is much gain in this, so encourage all these people this way. He was talking about the scripture that they already had, the, the Old Testament, and these things about Jesus are all there that they're kind of pointing. So he's the one. Oh, yeah, he's the one. I'm sure because that was the word that they had to refer to. And number two, that without the canon, there was constantly controversy. Right. And then you had people get killed, and other people would respond to that and say, oh man, Polycarp got killed. One group's inspired by that, 
and says, we'd be killed just like him. And then the other group says, well, what was it that got him killed? Oh, we, yeah, we don't believe that anymore. Mm-hmm. And so you had these kind of divisions automatically. Yep. And Polycarp, just by the way, he's one of my favorite people in church history because he said, in addition to what you said, the last part of what he said inspired lots of people. He said, you all are going to burn me with this fire that will just burn for a little while. And he said, I want everybody to be warned of the fire that will never be quenched <laughs> in front of Jesus. And they're like, is that all you got? Yeah, just them on fire. Yeah. And there's other, yeah. There's and they were repeated by lots and lots of people through history because they, they saw in him, that was the big threat was burning the other state, you know. So he was one of the first ones that ever kind of had a grateful speech and then all the people that followed that did, John Huss. And they lit him on fire and they were afraid that people would be converted just by his preaching on the stake. Um, when John, the brother, or not John, James, the brother of Jesus, the one who wrote the book of James, um, was murdered. He was he was sent up to the top of a temple, you know, a hundred so feet in the air, up, up on top of a building, and they told him to recant. And he, of course, he didn't. He preached, a, started preaching a sermon, and people were converted right then and there. And the Jewish people had to rush up to the top of the the temple and throw him down, so that people would not more people wouldn't be converted. Um, it's incredible. And he, the fall didn't kill him. He, he was preaching on the ground. They actually had to get a club and hit him over the head to kill him, um, because he was asking forgiveness, just you know, just like Stephen and like Jesus on the cross, even for the men that were killing him. And people were converted just sitting there watching this man die. Um, he was so convinced of of his faith. I think it's incredible to you know another a guy you can read an early church guy friend for that matter who really gives a lot of help on the, the early churches, uh, a historian by the name of Eusebius, you've probably heard of him, he, uh, History of the Church. I think he wrote that in the 3rd century or 4th century. And so it's relatively early on, but still he, he talks about a lot of these stories that you know we just kind of talk about. But he, you know, the, the, um, the killing of, the, of James, the brother of Jesus, is one that really stuck out to me because they had to kill him so that he wouldn't so he would stop like having these people converted as they were listening to him. It's incredible um, what was going on in the old church. They were courageous. Yes. They were absolutely courageous. Better people than me, um, by far and away. Uh, I know what you want to share now. I'll tell you all one little story. Though. I went to uh, the Colosseum in Rome, and the spirit guy was telling us about how just, it was an amazing piece of architecture, and big crowds would be gathered for fun events. At the Colosseum. Yeah. And she's saying this, and I'm sitting there in the back going, woman. And so anyway, she says, oh, it was the glory of Rome and all this stuff. And so anyway, I said, hey, I got a question. She said, oh, yeah. I said, what are all these pits underneath here that, that we can see today? And what was kept in there? Oh, all kinds of things. Well, like, like what? It's all like, uh, well, sometimes people would gather down there and do, and she just kind of like really tell beating around the bush and I said well, okay my question then is this you know where did you keep the lines that they fed the Christians to she's like oh well, what you're referring to yeah that was a really that was not a real good time here but they did and so she kind of showed you 
Well, one of the things you can see is where they would pull the thing up, the door, and the ramp that would just allow a line to just run straight up in. Some of you may have been there before, I don't know. It's amazing to see the picture of that. And so then another guy in our group who I didn't know, he starts speaking in English and telling everybody, he said, this is where all the brave Christians got killed in this place. They would let the gladiators kill them, the lions would eat them. I mean, it was a big sport. Crazy. And he said, and the Christians didn't give up. You know, I was like, yeah, man, good for you. But that's a big part of that you can actually go see today. Mm-hmm. And just my point is, courage. Those people, and God gave them the courage to take that stand because we take it for granted. I mean, we have trouble taking a stand to pray in a restaurant with our family or to share with our friends, people that we love, that care about us. And we can barely get the nerve to share the gospel. These people sharing it when the, you're getting ready to get thrown off the temple right. or fed to the lions. And I'm not trying to say that they weren't afraid, but there's a lot of different stories that you learn from Eusebius and other people like that that you're like, wow, you know what? They were courageous. Mm-hmm. And they had hope that was fixed on something that wasn't in this world. Yep. They weren't afraid to die, and they weren't afraid to preach either way. You know, They weren't afraid to be here living as Christ, and they weren't afraid to die, which is um, a lot to be said for that, I think. Well, any other questions or Again, next week we'll look at uh, the persecutions that went on in the early church. Um, So let's uh, close with prayer. Lord Jesus, we are thankful for these men and women who went before us. Uh, They weren't perfect. We're not perfect. We all look to you who are perfect. And we um, we are thankful for what you've done for us. We're thankful that you have called us to your service. We pray that you would help us to live as we ought, that we would teach others that they might learn and that they might repent and believe. Lord, we pray that you would bless the food that we're about to eat to our bodies, that we would bless our conversations together. In Jesus' name we pray.